part of the reason or the main reason we're doing this is because we often talk about movies that have a flaw yes. or something like that and we're trying to learn from those flaws and this time around actually what you've got is a just a very very complete movie that is just so good yes and I mean, the, you said something just off off mic. You said, uh, "Like, how highly do you rate this movie?" Well, it depends. <laughs> On a scale of zero to nice guys, I think it's about a nice guys. I don't. You rate this very highly. You, I love it. I you did. Love you it. would you would pull this together in the handful of movies you said, like in the past decade that you've seen that are just well, yeah. Really it, it just reminded me of those wonderful films like Midnight Run and My Cousin Vinny. Right, so um, it. where it was just one of those films where you just it's it's complete. There's there's really nothing. There's nothing you can change. There's nothing you need to change, and there's nothing you want to change, and it's just a joy to sit down and watch. Um, and it's just so well done, and it's beautiful. And the thing that's interesting is normally people want to learn from mistakes, and sometimes I, well, how do you learn from something that's this precise? Hello and welcome to the Story Toolkit. I'm Basim El-Wakil, co-author of Action, The Art of Excitement with Robert McKee, and joining me is Luke Lionel, writer and part of the McKee Storylog team. So today we're going to talk about The Nice Guys. Yes, which finally. Is, which is the Ryan Gosling, Russell Crowe film uh, written and directed by Shane Black. Yes. Um, and as always, if you have anything you would like to... Ask us or hear us talk about, or just to say hello, um, Twitter at the Story Toolkit and the storytoolkit.wordpress.com. And a big thank you to anybody, um, uh, A, for listening, and B, anybody who's got in touch so far. Yes. <sighs> okay, is, nice, guys. nice guys. So, okay, I'm going to do something now very important. If you haven't seen The Nice Guys, stop the podcast. <laughs> I think it's on Netflix still. It is on Netflix, right? so that's how I yeah. watched it. Just watch it. Just watch it. It's 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 just wonderful. you love this movie, don't you? I love it. Uh, yeah, and so just go ahead and watch the nice guys. We mentioned it briefly in the sketches 2016 podcast. At the end of uh, last year, we we just ran yeah. through about 14, 15 things that we'd seen during the year that we liked but hadn't had the inclination um, necessarily to do a whole podcast on. Yeah, and since then. I have done two things. I have listened to a big interview on the Writers Panel podcast, which is a good podcast. You should listen to it as well, um, but not instead of listening to this. The one. Writers Panel. The Writers Panel. Yes, okay. with Ben Blacker. Um, there's a whole ton. Of, there's like 300 episodes, so you can pick and choose who. Are you, you want seriously to. telling me that Shane Black did an interview with a guy called Ben Blacker? Yes. I I just I feel like that like this. That's not a real name. That's just something he was doing a one-upmanship. And if his name had been like Shane White, he'd been he'd have been Ben Whiter. Do you know? I, like, it, just it's too weird. Anyway, sorry. Um, I'd not considered that. So one, I'd list, so I'd list, weird. <laughs> earlier this year, uh, so since then, how do you not, like how, like the subtext? Surely it's just like I'm Shane Black and I'm Ben Blacker. Oh snap! The interview was not as confrontational as that would suggest. Oh, okay. Uh, but it's a great interview. It's like an hour and a half long um, and it gives you a real insight into Shane Black's, um, uh, who is less black than Ben Blacker. Um, that came out wrong. It did. I just realized my R snap thing also came out wrong. Uh, I didn't mean it that way at all. I just... Uh... Okay, let's just get around. I, 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 I have seen... I have, I have listened to the interview, by the way. Yeah, uh, but uh, it gives you an, interview, an insight into his process and, yes. and his his thoughts behind some of uh, some of the movies he's written. And secondly, most importantly, more, uh, more recently, I, I rewatched Nice Guys. And yes. The first time I saw it, I thought it was good. Second time I watched it, I really appreciated it. Yeah, a lot, lot more closer <laughs> to how much you appreciated it. So, hence we're here, yeah, talking about Nice Guys. So, um, just no. <laughs> I'm gonna break her off. No. Um, <laughs> oh man, Ryan Gosling is so funny in this film. I'm gonna look. As I said, you have watched the film now, right? This is important that you've watched the film now because I'm gonna. We're gonna talk almost in shorthand about this film. So, <laughs> could you run us through a synopsis? But, why don't you? 
You just okay. saw it because I cannot off the cuff synopsis. I'll say, "Oh wait, no, I forgot that there's this other guy with a thing." This is your. It's your it's I your do thing. that all the time. It's your thing. Okay, Russell Crowe is a gladiator in two, the year two thousand, and he travels back in time to nineteen seventy six. Uh, oh, I've confused things. Oh, if only Luke had done it. Um, okay, so the film is set in the seventies, um, and there's a murder mystery. And uh, they solve it. And it's very good. Um, so it's just this, this great opening scene. <laughs> you know the one, because you've seen the film, right? All of you. Um, where the kid is walking through his house at night and he's looking at a Playboy. And it has a picture, and he's looking at the centerfold of a woman called Misty Mountains. And she's like splayed out on, I think, a bed or something. And, uh, you know, arch, arch back and all that stuff. And he's walking through his house, and suddenly this car goes off the road in the background. And it's silent because it's so far away. But you see, it, you go, oh, oh, you know, that black comedy laugh of, oh, that's, that must have hurt. And then suddenly the car comes right through his house and smashes. And he goes down to the wreckage. And splayed out having crashed through the car and everything arched back and all is misty mountains completely naked uh lying on this rock thing so like literally the woman he was looking at is dead in front of him and she just goes uh how'd you like my car big boy and then dies and he takes off his shirt and covers up her up uh, as the sirens come in. And that's the prologue of the film. And that just tells you how good this film is. <laughs> because you know everything about her and there's no dialogue. The one line is, how do you like my car, big boy? Which is and a huge setup. It's a huge clue. Uh, but you don't even realise that. And so you know who died, why it matters that she died. You know that there's a murder mystery of some sort because it's that kind of film. And it's such a weird setup and everything. But there's no dialogue or anything. It's just done. Really brilliantly. And that's the opening scene. And then from then on, you meet the two characters. Russell Crowe's character and Ryan Gosling. And Ryan Gosling is this single dad, right? And he's a private investigator, but he's rubbish. He's rubbish. There's there's this brilliant bit where he decides to break into a place by punching through the glass of a door. He wraps, he wraps uh, some cloth around his hand to protect his hand. <laughs> Punches through the glass. Doesn't cut his hand. But unfortunately, the glass at the bottom of the pane just rips his forearm. And he just pulls his hand and there's blood. And he goes, oh, that's a lot of blood. Puts his hand on it to stop the bleeding. But the blood is just pouring and collapses. <laughs> it's just like straight away he's in hospital. <laughs> That's the first thing you see him do. He's terrible at his job. Uh, Russell Crowe, on the other hand, is uh, kind of a badass. Uh, and he's a tough, tough guy. And um, so there's this thing where <clears throat> um, uh, Ryan Gosling is on the trail of a woman uh, who her grandmother has said, I saw her and she's disappeared. What's going on? And um, it and Russell Crowe has been hired to stop him from looking for her. And then what happens is the investigation sort of carries on. It turns out what they're looking for is the woman who died, Misty Mountains. But it turns out Misty Mountains had another double in this porn film that she had made. And the name of the film is How Do You Like My Car, Big Boy? And what's going on in the film that is being made is that there's this huge conspiracy in the auto industry about badly made cars that will kill lots of people, but they're not recalling them because it will cost too much money to recall them. So they're just letting these cars go out that are very dangerous, that will kill loads of people. And that industry is so corrupt. And the woman who's sort of the double of Misty Mountains, her, I think, sister, or is it her mother? Kim Kim Basinger, I've forgotten now. Mother. It's mother, right? Yeah. Um is the department of justice head of the department of justice and 
Uh, so she's doing part of the cover-up, and that's how come she knows everything. So she has put this into a porn film to expose them. And so that's why Misty Mountains was killed, because she was in the film saying all the things about the conspiracy, and the two of them basically worked together to uncover this conspiracy and try and get people to justice. And of course, because they're so corrupt, ultimately they, they don't get put away for anything, and but they do at least stop the conspiracy and... And it's just hilarious, and it's fun, and it's wonderful. That's the basic bare bones of what happens. And I deliberately murdered it because um, you you saw the film. <laughs> I'm just giving you the bare bones of what what it was about, and then that's it. Because th- yeah, that's well, okay. It. Let's let's get into the good stuff then. Yes. Okay. Because um, part of the reason I can't make it as good as it is. No. <laughs> and I refuse to try. But uh, part of the reason, or the main reason we're doing this is because we often talk about movies that have a flaw or yes. something like that, and we're trying to learn from those flaws. And this time around, actually, what you've got is a, just a very, very complete movie that is just so good. Yes. And I mean, the- you said something, just off off mic, you said, uh, like, how highly do you rate this movie? Well, it depends. <laughs> On a scale of zero to nice guys. I think it's about a nice guys. I don't. You rate know. this very highly. You, I love it. I you did love you it. would you would pull this together in the handful of movies you said like in the past decade that you've seen that I just Well, yeah, really it, it just reminded me of those wonderful films like Midnight Run and My Cousin Vinny. Right. Um, it. where it was just one of those films where you just it's it's complete. There's there's really nothing There's nothing you can change. There's nothing you need to change. And there's nothing you want to change. And it's just a joy to sit down and watch. Um, And it's just so well done. And it's beautiful. And the thing that's interesting is normally people want to learn from mistakes. And sometimes I... Well, how do you learn from something that's this precise? So we're going to... Yeah, and I don't don't think Nice Guys did that well. Either. No. No, it didn't. It didn't do it. No. Um, And that's because basically that's your fault. Not you, Luke. I mean the people who are listening. It's your fault. Um, all of you collectively, I'm sure. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Did you see it in the cinema? No, you didn't. Fun fact: neither did I. But <laughs> I feel like you're on a mission. This podcast. The reason I didn't see it in the cinema is because I didn't realise it had come and gone, and I only watch cinema the films that are in the silver screen cinema. And it's a tiny two screen cinema. And films like will be there for two weeks and they're gone. And I just missed Get Out as well from that cinema. So that's why I didn't see The Nice Guys. But the rest of you out there watching your movies and your cineplexes and your multiplexes, sitting there with your popcorn and your hot dogs, drinking iced tea or whatever it is that you get at the cinema. Did you go and see The Nice Guys? No. And it's your fault we can't have anything nice. So guys, if you're still listening, we're going to push on now to why it's so good. Set up some payoffs. Let's talk about that. First. Yeah. So, uh, as I said, like the the great thing about this film is this is the the sense of completion to it. That it's just um, <clears throat> it's just disciplined and precise. And so the setups in the film pay off in the film. It's not one of these films where there's setups that don't have payoffs. There's payoffs without setups. It's not one of these films that requires you to watch another film beforehand or promises a sequel to come. The resolution suggests you could have a sequel, but you don't need one. Uh, it's not like these films that are sort of these endless franchise films that fundamentally don't go anywhere, but promise that the next film will be the one that pays off or now not even the next film but rather the third or fourth film in the series will be the one that's worth your time um and so they plan out these huge film franchises that are supposed to last three four five films and the first film nothing happens but you can't go see the fourth film because the first film has all the setups in it and you're sitting there like so i have to wait like 10 years for you to finish your story what um, you know, and you're not getting nearly as much as you would say from a television season. Whereas this is one of those films where it's just everything is set up and paid off in the film, and it's disciplined, it's very well written, um, and it's <clears throat> and it's just terrific fun. And um, and so when you look at the nice guys, and you realize, as we said, like you know, how do you like my car, big boy? You just think she's this highly sexualized. Uh, porn star these are her last words the kid who looked at her 
you know, he was looking at a picture of her in a Playboy just before this happened, and she's lying in front of him, and he's like 12, 13 years old. She's lying in front of him completely naked. And so it's there's this tragic mortality but sexuality to that entire scene. And she goes, how would you like my car, big boy? And you just brush it off. But it turns out that's the name of the film. And that this character, she wasn't being flippant in her last words. She was literally telling the kid the motive for her murder. Right? That she was killed over that film. And that's the kind of thing where it's just like you're setting up things and paying them off in ways you don't even... (laughs) need to like, <laughs> you don't even need to do that but the fact that that's the case her the only line in that entire scene that entire pre, uh, pre uh, prologue is itself this incredible setup right and it's not a setup for, it's not a clue for the characters because the characters don't know it mm. it's for us yeah it's just nothing is wasted and when someone writes like that you relax and you just enjoy the work because you know the person knows their craft. I think that's a really interesting point, actually. Yeah. The fact that when you, when you know you are in the hands of somebody that good, you do just ease off, don't you? You do. You just relax into it. And um, you can sense it. There's things, you know, some things I've watched recently, you can just tell the, in the opening scenes, Yeah. it's not quite right. And so you're on edge and so you start looking right. for things that are not working or something like that but exactly this, just from the get-go yeah you just you just let it come to you in which lie did i tell william goldman who you know wrote misery butch casting the sundance sure, kid yeah, princess yeah. bride uh he talks about fargo the film and he talks about this bit he says where the magic is done which is you you're you're going to just um follow this film no matter where it goes Okay. And in Fargo, it's the scene in the snow at the beginning where the wife, not the wife, sorry, the cop, who's the wife of the Cohen brothers, yeah. um, uh, Marge, played by Frances McDormand, vomits in the snow as she's solving the case. Yeah. He said that for me was the moment where the magic is done. It's like, yep, I'm done. I'm in the film. <laughs> I can relax now and just enjoy it. Um, and yeah, so. Did he for- say why that scene for him? Oh, geez, it's so long since I read it. Um, what did he say? I know one of the things he said was, he goes, I know the Cohen brothers. I know that there's no way they will kill pregnant Marge off <laughs> so I can relax. Um, but it's just you're in love with her. You're just done. You love that character too much and you know that they won't kill her. So you just relax into the film and you can just enjoy it. Okay. I think that's how he phrased it. It's been a while since I read the book. I can't remember. But I remember the phrase... Yeah, you know uh, that sense and with the nice guys yeah with that opening scene I just remember just relaxing and going right I have never seen this before yeah I've never seen this before and I and the amount of information I just got from that scene in which there was only one line is amazing so I I was done the magic was done and then later on when you find out the name of the um the, the film is her last word. You just go, you're just showing off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just you son of a... Okay, Mr. Black. Fine. You win this round. <laughs> Have my heart. Um, so it was just great. It's And it's one of those things where, you know, I see that, you know, some, you know, I, we do this podcast and, you know, whenever I read other people's work or whatever... The standard you hold yourselves to, like I, for me, when I look at that, there's, it's not just okay. That's great to watch and everything, but I'm thinking as someone who, as 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 a writer, bastard Shane Black, <laughs> like ah, you know, it's just like that's so well done. Just the op- just to do the opening scene of that film is so well done. Like I wish I could write that well. Just the opening scene. I wish I could go, I can come up with how to deliver all this exposition without any dialogue. And set up a mystery. And give you a clue that you don't even know is a clue until I want you to know it's a clue. 
and it's going to work and blah, blah, blah. To do that so well, and you just look at that and go, that is, that's that's just a great writer. That's a master at work, right? It's just, yeah, he's just, and you just look at that and just go, geez, that's the standard. That's the standard you're trying to get to. And so when I hold people to it, I'm like, that's, this is what you should be aiming for. Now, granted, you're not always going to get there. But Shane Black, how did he get there? Well, because he sat down and he went, well, I'm a genius. Tap, 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 tap. He's like, no, he sat down and he probably wrote that scene, I don't know, 50 times. And he went, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold on, I can do it this way. I can do it that way. Crack, 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 bam. And remember, he he directed the film. Yeah. So he cast the kid. And he cast the person who played Misty. And he chose what car. And he chose the look of the house. He chose what road. Choice after choice after choice. They had to have a scene location. They had to have a set built. They had to have a crash site. They had to decide, okay, how do I shoot this scene from that? So he's got all these choices to make to make that thing. And you sit there and you think, geez, have I even bothered to get roll up my sleeves and get into my work at all. And then you realize that's how he's able to produce something that good because of all these choices and all these considerations that he has to make. And then some people, I get it, you bulk at it and you just go, no, I haven't got the time. I haven't got the inclination. I haven't got the effort to do it. And it's like, okay. But then you also can't be upset when someone turns around and goes, it didn't work. Right. Right, because you didn't do all this. The way the way that Shane Black talks about the craft you do get a sense that he did write each scene 50 times. Yeah, you do. Like, he just works. He graphs. Yeah. Yeah, he just sits down, just keeps grinding away, doesn't he? One of the things I also love about the setups and payoffs, particularly in relation to them being clues in a mystery, mm. is that the detectives get some wrong. Yes. <laughs> Which you don't They get see. them wrong. They miss clues. Yeah. Uh, and also, interesting that came from the writer's panel podcast. Sure. Which was the whole thing about how he bought clues from other writers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he loves all these hard-boiled detective novels. And, you know, people say, why don't you just adapt one? And he goes, well, the problem is some of them have bad endings. Some of them have bad beginnings. Some of them have bad middles. They all require rewrites and rework, in which case, why doesn't he just write his own one? But sometimes he finds a really great clue. And so he called... I mean, listen to this. I mean, I, I, maybe he's lying, but I don't think he is, right? This is what he does. He goes ahead and he calls... Finds the author. Finds their granddaughters. If they're, you know, if they're dead, they've passed on, right? Finds anyone connected to them and pays them some money to have the rights to use the clue. And he just take, he buys, pays, pays them, buys the clue, puts the clue in his work. Yeah, and and so he goes like, "This is a great clue." And so he, and he goes out and he, pay, he doesn't steal it. He goes out and pays for it, and he gets to put the clue in his work. And he uses this great clue. And there's so many wonderful clues and nice guys. One of them being the grandmother that I mentioned, who says she saw her daughter Misty after she died. Right? How is that possible? And it turns out what she saw in her daughter's house was not her. She saw her in uh, on a film. In the film. Exactly, the porn film. But it was interesting to see this, the sex part. What she saw, she said, I saw her, she was talking to somebody in a uh, pinstripe suit, if I remember right, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she keep, and every, the first, from the first time to the last time, she's always saying that. And the woman seems a bit demented and so on. So you think, okay, she's just saw somebody who looked like her, whatever. But what happens is when they're raiding the porn uh, film set, they find the costumes that they wore. And one of the costumes is the pinstripe suit. And so they realized that she's watching the video. That's how she saw her. She didn't see the daughter. She saw the film, which means the film is out there. And if the film is out, then that means the people who are chasing for the conspiracy, blah, blah, blah. They must have be able to find the film. If they find the film, they can unmask the conspiracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so it's, that's just great. That's just great. It's great setups, great payoffs. I mean, the payoff and, comes, it and progresses you, the story. And they give you that clue, or uh, Shane Black gives you that clue Yes. after, what, 20 minutes, half yes. an hour? Where one of the first times you meet that yeah. woman. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's the woman, actually, they make fun of a little bit, yeah. where she hires him to find her husband. And I think it's a different one. Oh, is that a different yeah. one? Okay. But, I think, but it's in that same sort of sequence, if I remember yeah. right. So yeah, yeah like you get the sense that what he's doing is he's defrauding old ladies. Sure. So, um, yeah, she, she says, I, I, I saw her alive. Yeah. After the point at which she's already dead. But yeah. you think she's crazy. And you so think you she's crazy. You don't. 
And it's not the first time she says it. You hear her say it twice. Right. Uh, So, I mean, yeah. So they're hiding this clue in plain sight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it's great because it has a meaning on top of it. It's germane why the characters are saying it. You think you understand why she said it that way. You know there's a mystery there, but you don't see the TV thing coming. And it's because it's just a great clue. So if you want to learn about setups and payoffs, you yeah, can do just a lot worse than look at this movie in detail, just specifically to how they. Use yeah, just the how he how he sets up the clues, how he pays them off, and as you say, which ones the characters get wrong. I mean, it's great because they're characters; they're not just mouthpieces of exposition. Yeah, these are characters who are motivated in every scene to act the way that they do. And it makes sense why they're doing the things that they're doing on the surface, which is why the clues don't stick out at you, because everything makes germane sense. Yeah. And already he's setting up and paying off. And there's this great economy of writing, and yet you're still going in different directions than you than would solve it. And then he reveals the payoff, and then you go, okay, that's great. Yeah. And then the next, and it's just it's just you know that standard of of quality of writing is constant throughout this film, from first scene to last, every scene. Set up, payoff, tight, economy of writing. And you can tell, like, there isn't a scene where he just hacked it out one day. No. Every scene, he sat down and he broke it apart. And it's the only way you can produce quality of this level. And it's, and you know, you know, okay, I was joking earlier about everyone at home, it's your fault. But the point being is, like, this film did not do well. Yeah. And it's just some sort of off-the-cuff, fun, little buddy cop movie that no one really watched. Why didn't they watch? Well... Who really cares about seven? And it's like this is some of the best writing in cinema. That's been the case for a while, in, except you know, at least in this type of genre. And yeah. it's just like, and he's he's great. And the film he did before this, correct me if I'm wrong, was Iron Man three, right? Which uh... Uh, the, that was the film of his that came out just before this one. And Iron Man three, he wrote and directed, and I still stand by is the best Marvel film. It was Iron Man 3, you're correct. And it's the best Marvel film. I mean, the only one that comes up to it is Guardians, and Guardians um, has a couple of issues with it, but I really loved the first Guardians. Yeah. Uh, but I think Iron Man 3 is a better film. And it's just... He 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 just has this um, discipline of writing that produces such economic, well-made work. Let's move on, because there's some other bits we want to talk about as well. Let's talk about tone of the nice guys. Yeah, the tone. Because the, t- the tone for me it w- um, was one of the things that yeah. I loved most about the the balance between the drama and the comedy. Yeah. Well, William Goldman was a master of this. I say was. I think he's pretty much retired now. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he's dead. I think he's still alive. But he's pretty much... He, he doesn't do much anymore. And in the writer's panel, Shane Black... Uh, talks about William Goldman and how much he reveres William Goldman. And it's not surprising because they have a very similar sense of tone. Uh, The Princess Bride is very similar to this, right? Uh, So is Butch Cassidy. Yeah. Right? Uh, I'd say Butch Cassidy more so. You think? Yeah, because uh, Princess Bride has more sort of whimsy throughout it, whereas Butch Cassidy does balance that drama and comedy in the same way. Yeah, but Butch Cassidy has a much more uh, dramatic ending. Yes. But, actually, this is a point. You know, Princess Bride, we're talking about Princess Bride, Butch Cassidy. What's interesting is what makes Nice Guys stand out so much now is that this quality of writing... You know, as I was saying about how you have all these franchises that are all open-ended and everything, yeah? <clears throat> this type of writing was the default. It just wasn't as good all the time, right? You had bad versions and good versions, but it was the default. The biggest films of the 80s, the 70s, the 60s were this kind of disciplined writing, right? And so Shane Black stands out in the contemporary cinema. Right, but because when you, you don't have that standard, you don't have that standard. Yeah. But when you compare it to other films like Princess Bride, Butch Cassidy, you realize this kind of quality, this kind of talent, this kind of discipline has always been there in these kinds of films. Yeah, and it's just that he's the only one who's doing that now. Yeah, but they they used to have these things, and his tone it's the same thing. It's it, it knows how to be funny, it knows how to be serious, and it knows how to just walk that with grace and style and wit I mean Ryan Gosling is almost universally hilarious throughout the whole film Ryan Gosling is incredible I loved him before but the, this 
this made him yeah like I I would watch anything now yeah him. he's just so good without question he's so funny I had no idea it was this funny but he's also you could argue the most dramatic character in the film right like he's really sad this guy yeah I mean he's on yeah. a path of self destruction yeah and you you kind of get really worried for him but he's also the funniest character in the film right He's, you, he's the biggest extreme in the film. And Russell Crowe's character is a gem of a character. But he's much more, in that tonal sense, he's much more in the middle of the road. So when Ryan Gosling is really tragic, he's a bit lighter. And when he, uh, Ryan Gosling's really silly and light, he's a bit darker. But he, he doesn't run the gamut the same way that yeah, he's not as much right. of a cartoon in that way. Right. And so the two are polarised. They're always working together. So exercise two, if you were going to break this movie down, would be to look at the interplay between those two characters yeah. and what note, what notes they hit. Yeah. Like, for <laughs> like for example, the shootout. Okay. In I, was the gonna house. Br- I was going to bring the shootout up because the, the biggest laughs in the movie... <laughs> <laughs> the biggest laughs in the movie come from the times where... Uh, at the most dramatic moments yes so that shootout where John yeah. Boy the, the assassin has come to kill them and you, th- you th- my god you've, you've already seen what this guy can do yes so you think you see the lift are, you see yeah, the lift the, scene right yeah. where they show up in the lift and they okay, the lift, you see all these dead bodies and he's killing everyone and they just peer around the corner go back into the lift press down and they just leave very quietly as they're leaving the guy gets kicked out of the window and plummets to his death as they can see him falling from the lift and they just stare right ahead nothing just like oh they are out of their depth and what's great by the way is Ryan Gosling's useless okay so you know he's out of his depth Russell Crowe is really tough yeah, and he is also like we're just going right. <laughs> so the two of them together reacting in the same way. This is the, see, this is a really interesting thing I hadn't considered, which is when you have a polarized cast like this and they react the same way to an event, right? Yeah, you immediately like it. It's almost like um, what, what's the musical term? Um, like a chord. Yeah, it's like a chord, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, it's like boom, like that. Like you're making the point. It's like ding, it's. Like, like that you're making that point it's like they're both scared right Ryan Gosling isn't so stupid that he doesn't realise how dangerous this guy is and Russell Crowe is smart enough to recognise how dangerous this guy is <laughs> and so the two of them are both leaving because they're both terrified and you go wow this guy's really scary but you've got you've got that moment which is a huge laugh yeah. when the assassin arrives <laughs> yes yes <laughs> Russell Crowe's like Toss me the gun. Toss me the gun. <laughs> Gosling throws it and it just... He just throws it so badly and so hard just right through the window to toss it away. Like, what did you do? I threw you the gun. <laughs> and, the, and the other biggest laugh for me was... Uh, the, well, hold on. Again, that's completely in character. Yeah. This is just great because you know Ryan Gosling and you know Russell Crowe but you also know the genre and you think when Russell Crowe does it you go yeah you just throw the gun but then Ryan got, you go yeah why did you ask him to throw the gun like you know he's useless you know that was going to go wrong and he's like why did you? Why can't you just throw a gun it's like jeez I didn't realize how rubbish this guy like he's panicking he's not clearly thinking things through he's just, <laughs> just tossing the gun and just or when like, they're in the, the hotel room uh, at the end of the movie yeah. and they've got a gun pointed at both of them and she gets distracted and Ryan Gosling <laughs> leaps to the floor to take this ankle gun that he had a dream about halfway through the movie it's like what are you doing I'll give your ankle gun I don't have an ankle gun <laughs> so okay there's that dream sequence so here's a great thing about that dream sequence it slowly becomes a dream sequence you don't realise that he's fallen asleep at the wheel so with the ankle holster thing you think okay that's a real thing then it turns out like there's a bee in the back that's talking to. It's like okay, this and you go. This is really so. There's the ankle holster. Then the car starts driving itself, and you go, wait, what? And I remember watching. They're like, yeah, that's cruise control, right? Isn't that what American cars do? They have cruise control. It takes his feet off the pedals and like, yeah, and hand off the steering wheel. I'm like, I don't know how cruise control works. Is that how it works? And then the bees in the back. I'm like, is this a dream? And then it's like your dream is. Ah, it wakes up. But you don't know when the dream is, right? When the dream started. 
And so obviously the car thing, you know, okay, that's it. But you think the ankle holster's real. And then, of course, the ankle holster comes back as a payoff. And he's like, oh, wait, did I dream the ankle holster? Yeah, you dreamt that. I was like, oh, shit, I dreamt it. Like that. So he's like on the floor <laughs> scrambling for a gun that's not there. Even if he had the gun, this is not the best way to get the gun. She's right? watching him do it. Yeah, it's point. just such a bad idea. <laughs> but the thing is, that dream sequence, the ankle holster setup, right, gag, is there. So that's a great callback to the dream sequence, which is really important because that dream sequence reminds you cars and the whole thing is about cars yeah so your cars are in your head and you remember what the film is about cars 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 because that happens before you know what the whole in the conspiracy is about yeah. and everything yeah, yeah. So the cars in your head but also what were they talking about in the car do you remember uh no i don't nixon oh god yeah and the nixon payoff's just about to come yeah. so you he the callback reminds you of that scene but it also reminds you of another setup no that's not where the nixon is it's in the car scene no the nixon story is um, isn't it no it's it's outside the department of justice is it yeah that's why they're waiting because he because he tells the whole story about nixon but he tells it about him in the car that they're driving no they're not driving at that point well it's it's it's, it's, aren't they no i remember it differently (laughs) I prefer your version. I thought that was the... Well, maybe Shane Black, maybe, maybe you they... should fix your film. <laughs> we found Maybe I'm remembering it wrong. Um, they might I forget. They might talk about the... They have just been there, so they might be talking There's about really Nixon no way again. for us to know either now. It's impossible. It's impossible. To in this it. post-fact world. <laughs> uh, but uh, they might be talking about Nixon. So I can't I remember. Wrong. But uh, yeah. anyway, so my, anyway, the point being that that dream sequence was that it had these... Set up some payoffs and they bring it back. To, yeah, you know, it's not. It's not if it's just not got that meaning. It's got these other reasons. Yeah, it's not just well. the ankle holster. The yeah. fact that they're driving a car is relevant. That the car crashes, which is what the auto industry thing is about, and all yeah. that stuff. So it's just like it's again this. There's this economy and layers. Even if maybe I've given it one layer more than it has, um, but this. <laughs> but the, the it but yeah, that that's the and point. so it's just yeah. So there's this great tone. So like yeah, they're in this life or death struggle. The comedy's brilliant, but then the brilliant. The brilliant thing is the comedy doesn't undo the danger. It just makes you laugh and it helps you. It gives you a little like that, a little bit of variety, a little bit of release of tension, and then get straight back into it. So it's not just tension, 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 tension. It's this great laugh and then it carries on. So it's just it, the, 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 the tonal shifts are done like the setups and payoffs. It's just, okay, now is the right time to have a joke. Yeah. So I mean I don't know how Shane Black actually writes that. Does he? I don't think he says like he sits down and goes. Now is the right time to have a good. Well, book, that's right? that's the other thing. Is Again, we mentioned this off mic, but another good exercise for this movie would be to figure out how often there is a joke. Yeah, you could actually do this if you wanted to. You could just sit down and go. When does when's a joke? Uh, and note like when he makes these jokes, and then pay attention to how the jokes progress. Because yeah. the jokes get bigger as the film goes on. Yeah. Like, I think one of the best bits in this film... And, again, this film is original. I can't I can't express this enough. I haven't seen this film before. This isn't like, oh, it's nostalgic body cop stuff. This is brilliant body cop stuff. This is body cop stuff that I'm like, I have not... Like, one of the best body cops in recent years have been, what, Hot Fuzz and yeah. 21 Jump Street? Yeah. Um... Both of those are parodies. The jokes rely on other people's films. Like a lot of Hot Fuzz is what is simply, let's do Michael Bay stuff, but in West Country, England, yeah. right? 21 Jump Street, a lot of it is, let's just mock American cinema cliches, right? And I love both those films, by the way. Nice Guys isn't that. Nice Guys is funny, but it's funny completely originally. And one of the best examples I can give is the revolving car scene. <laughs> he has this scene. It's brilliant. They're having a shootout in a car exhibition and they have those cars on those platforms that are revolving and Ryan Gosling runs up and takes cover behind the car and he puts his back against the door of the car and he's closed, his eyes closed and he's breathing he's like, ready to get up and shoot and the assassin is watching the car rotate. And so when Mike Gosling gets up to shoot, he just stands up, turns across the car, puts his hand across the roof of the car and looks and realizes he's facing the direction that he came from. And his back now is to the killer. 
and the killer's got the gun trained on him. And you're like, this is one of the best things I've ever seen. And I've never seen this before. I, I've seen shootouts in car exhibitions. I've seen shootouts with cars. I've never seen someone do this. And it's brilliant, and it's in character. Ryan Gosling, yeah. of course, is the guy who wouldn't notice. And he has fun with this, Shane Black, because he has Ryan Gosling start to think he's invincible and immortal. <laughs> because Ryan Gosling, despite completely messing up every step of the way, doesn't get hurt, and he starts going, I think I can't die. Was, did, you fall, <laughs> did you fall from the roof? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, think I, think, I think I'm invincible. It's the only possible explanation. Because you've got all these sort of coincidences while he's still alive. Like the fact that he didn't die, that was just like, I think I'm in bit. So he... <laughs> just great. It's just um, let's, great. Let, let's move on. I wanted to talk about the theme because... I, well, we're, talk, we're talking about tone, right? And okay. how you mix danger and all this stuff. Yeah. I think I'm invincible. Not only do you laugh, but there's a forward anticipation here, right? <laughs> Which is... What is he going to do now that he thinks he can't die? Like, we're expecting him to... This is going to make things worse. He's going to take crazier risks as a result of this. Like, he's lost it. He's unhinged, right? Russell Crowe is quite aware how dangerous the situation is. We think Russell Crowe's going to do okay. He might die, but, like, Russell Crowe gets it. Ryan Gosling is useless and doesn't get it. And we're just like, dude, what? No. So... At, while at the same time we're laughing, our anxiety is increasing. It's getting more tense. It's just added more danger to it. And it's just, yeah, it's just great. By the way, actually, I, yes. for, I forgot to mention on the on the humour point, how often to put the jokes in. Mm. Um, it is really important to uh, point out how breaking it down and, and seeing where they are would be an interesting exercise, but it wouldn't tell you where to put them the only way yeah. to know where to put jokes is to just sense your work as an audience member yeah to yeah to like, get people re- who are who are reading your work and watching yeah. people pay attention to it like you have to because the thing is even um shane black who's writing this right when he's directing it he has to get the timing right yes and then he has to get the act the editing right yeah so there's so much timing yeah so when he can't, you can't just go, I'm going to fit this joke in. Who knows what jokes he cut? I don't think he cut anything because he's, in fact, this is one of the things he points out in the writer's panel, which is he often doesn't cut much because he's worked it so hard. He's worked the story and script so much before he gets to script shooting that he doesn't need to cut things. He doesn't, because yeah. if he's going to direct it, he doesn't want to film a scene. He knows he's going to end up cutting. So if he goes, why have I put the scene in here for this line of exposition? He goes, okay, I'm going to find some other way to put that into another scene. So he's always doing that, right? Yeah. So it's unlikely that he's cut these things, but you're quite right. Like you could study this, but it won't tell you necessarily how many laughs is too many or anything like that. Or if that laugh is too much, you have to put it in front of people and tell is this a moment where I want them laughing or not? Them laughing ruins it, doesn't ruin it. Yeah. Um, a, a good example for this, for example, would be the Avengers, I think, where the laughs kill the film. Yeah. Um, the big laugh at the end with puny God, you know, and Hulk smashes Loki is very funny, but it completely destroys Loki as a character. There's no danger in the story anymore. It's just them finding CGI aliens yeah. for the end of the film. And it just loses all the danger, loses all the interest. Uh, it's ju- it's just that because when you do when you do a laugh, the the emotional tension goes. That's what laughter is, right? Yeah. It's that release. So, if you do a laugh and you release all the tension, you're done. Right. So, comedy is always building up the adrenaline and everything. So, what you have to do, you have to, what they call this, the good laugh. Right? And it's called the good laugh because it's intentional. And it's done at the right time just to pierce the tension to alleviate some of it. And essentially, then you can build back up again. But if you do it too often and too much, you never build any tension. I think the the, the point is between, just on the Avengers point, yeah. um, is that that removes the danger because yes. you, then set, you then know that Loki has no power over the heroes right. and it's done. It's done. In this, the the humour comes from them doing things incorrectly or stupid things. You yeah. know, suddenly thinking oh, he's fallen from a building and now he thinks he's invisible invincible is a terrific laugh. But you yes. know now he's probably in even more danger. Exactly. Right. Like, so because da- he's even less aware of the danger he's exactly. in. Exactly. And so uh, so your 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 attention goes up. 
You yeah. get that release, and then your tension goes up as soon as you realize yeah. what this means, right? And so it's done just brilliantly. Um, probably won't talk about this for long, but I, I really liked in in the interview um, mm. Shane Black talking about the theme yes. of the Nice Guys because you don't often get the benefit of writers picking their own work apart and saying, like, here, yes. here is what I intended and here's what I wanted in, in my story. There's few that and can. Like Matt, Matt Stone and Trey Parker from South Park can sure, do it. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's few that William can. William Goldman can. There's few yeah. that can. Um, and I guess the, the ones that can, actually, are probably the ones that are just really good. Yes. Right? Yes. Because they, 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 they know what they're... They've got purpose behind their choices. Yeah. yeah. They make choices and there's purpose and behind them. Yeah. Uh, and also, if you, I mean, if you look at Matt Stone and Trey Parker and Shane Black, they direct their films, their work, right? Sure. Uh, William Goldman didn't direct, but uh, it's oh man, it's his books. It's funny. Uh, you can tell that the films he makes, he puts all this purpose in his screenplays, and the directors he works with respect him, so they pay attention. Yeah. And so they might make different choices than him uh, when they film it. Um, but um, for things like Butch Cassidy, George Roy Hill, for example, who directed Butch Cassidy, and him, they went back and forth talking it through, and so everything has decisions, and so because he works with the director, and he he respects the director, and the director respects him, he doesn't give them scene. Yeah, it's not just a spec thing, it's an actual thing of like, the person I'm writing this, the, the, the film I'm writing is going to be made by this person yeah. and so as a result I know how this is going to play out um, whereas um, a lot of times if, uh, uh, particularly in these sort of big budget factory type films um, what happens is you have a screenwriter who writes a spec script and they don't even have a director attached yeah. and, um, and so they end up with anybody yeah exactly uh, and, uh, and sometimes uh, the film is already scheduled to be made and they've got pre-production and they're about to start shooting and the thing hasn't been filmed uh, sorry hasn't been written and so it has to be written as things are getting made and therefore you don't have the time to make choices you just do things because some production uh, some producer said we're doing a scene here you need yeah. to make a scene for that so it's not a choice it's something that's been forced upon them and like you can make that work it's not that you can't make these yeah, things sure work, but uh, if you don't have the time, and if you don't have the talent, and if you don't have the passion and desire and discipline, you're not going to do it. Uh, and when you have someone like Shane Black, who does have all these things, he has the discipline, the talent, he has the skill, he has the passion for these projects, which is what you're talking about with theme, right? Yeah. Like his themes, you can tell he's very passionate about the subject he's talking about. Yeah. yeah. Which was... Well, in this case, I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but the, the, the point he makes about the theme of uh, the nice guys was basically on the on the compromised streets of L.A. So it's not just set in L.A. It's set in L.A. in the 70s where you've got this smog hanging over the mm. city. On the compromised streets of L.A., you have these knights in tarnished armor, um, and and their whole the whole point of it is that little girls need saving, whether or not they are actual little girls or... Um, or the porn star Misty Mountain. Yeah, I thought that was a particularly beautiful insight that um, the characters do express in the way that they are trying to get justice for her, which yeah. is even though she's a porn star, yeah. she's still someone's little girl yeah. who's looking out for her, right? Who's the one who's hounding them to find her? The mother. Right? And it's just like she's someone's little girl. That used, you know, and so she can't just be tossed aside like that. Yeah. Um, and which, of course, is the whole point problem with the auto industry thing, which is that they're callously killing, going to kill so many people. Yeah. They don't care. Um, and so it's just like they're always someone's little girl. And of course, the the the, the double, I forget her name, who they're trying to kill. Amelia. Amelia. Amelia is Kim Basinger's little girl. Yeah. And she's trying to protect her. She's trying to get her not to... But at the end, she has to kill her because she won't shut up, right? Yeah. But it's her little girl she's trying to save. Like, but her little girl matters, but Misty Mountains, who's someone else's, doesn't matter. Ryan Gosling's daughter doesn't matter. And Ryan Gosling, the only times he snaps out of his stupor, right, yeah. is for his girl. Yeah. Like, that's that's the only thing that wakes him up. Um, and so... And yeah, you're right. This tarnished knife thing that Shane Black says they have, which is just it. It's... The, it's, it's there's a real... Um, what do you, how did you phrase it off mic uh, it's actually about something 
I I think I said something like he's actually got something to fucking say. Yes, and like it matters. What like that. Say. Oh like, yeah, this that matters. Mad, you know. Yeah, and it's like yeah, and he it, it, and it's this silly, light, fun, exciting film. But yeah, there's something. There's a real emotional core to this that really does matter and yeah. is quite touching. It when resonates, you right? Yeah, and if you wanted to do it straight serious, you could, but he wants to put some wit and grace to it, and it's just charming as a result. But, yeah, the little girl, Ryan Gosling's daughter, is amazing in this film. Yeah. She's wonderful. She's yeah. such a great character. She outsmarts them, <laughs> right? She outsmarts the woman that ha- like the woman that's going to kill both Crow and Gosling. She outsmarts. Remember? And she's just, she, she's just. She also gets it wrong, though, like her dad. Yeah. yeah. When she tries to throw the hot coffee on him and it's cold. <laughs> that's right. That's such a great gag. Yeah. That's such a great gag. Uh, yeah. So, like, yeah, she's she's just this wonderful character. Um, but I get that, even that gag, another great example. And of she's heroic, right? Because she risks yeah. her life to save Amelia. Yeah, she's just great character. It's another another great example of um, uh, you you get the gag doesn't kill the danger if anything now the person holding the gun is more angry yeah like there's yeah exactly and so but yeah the, the theme and this is the case in all of his films he always has this there's actually something to it um yeah. and um he uh, and he i mean he the, you know everyone jokes about shane black even shane black jokes about this which is all his films are set at christmas the first question on the writer's panel he gets asked yeah. is why christmas yeah i saw uh, like uh, like a talk he gave at the in crowd on you can see this on youtube and like the first question is so why christmas and the answer is always the same i think um i think nerd writer did one on shane black it might have been okay. or it might have been tony zoo's every frame of painting one of them, I think, did... Uh, but again, those two YouTube channels are really worth watching. Uh, Shane Black always does his films at Christmas. And the answer he's given, and it's the, this is why he does it. At Christmas, emotions are exaggerated. People who are lonely feel lonelier. People who are suicidal are more suicidal. Right? There's a reason more, more suicides happen at New Year's, Valentine's Day, and Christmas. Yeah, Those are the three hotspots for suicide. So... He's, he he sets at this time because it's at this moment where everyone's trying to come together and people... And so the emotions are just more exaggerated because of the time of year. And it's funny, by the way, because um, he did Lethal Weapon. And Lethal Weapon is, you know, really great. Shane Black uh, did this thing. And so you talk about Lethal Weapon, which he did, and, you know, Long Kiss Goodnight, Iron Man 3, Nice Guys, all this. But there's one film that seems like a really big Shane Black film, but he didn't do, which is Die Hard. (laughs) Right? Yeah. But the reason it feels like a Shane Black film is because it is a Shane Black film. Uh, Joel Silver, who produced Lethal Weapon, after Lethal Weapon went... Got got the Die Hard thing and went. We're going to make this, but we're going to make it more like Lethal Weapon. That's why it's set at Christmas, right? It's called Die Hard because that was Shane Black's title for it. Really? Yes. That's why it's got humor in it. It's probably why they cast Bruce Willis, who was a romantic comedy lead. Yeah. He wasn't a dramatic actor at that time, right? So that whole film of Die Hard, it was made by the producer of Lethal Weapon, Shane Black's first big film specifically to emulate the Shane Black <laughs> elements of Lethal Weapon. Yeah. And that's why Die Hard feels like such a Shane Black film, because his fingerprints are actually all over it, even though he didn't write it or direct it. His fingerprints, the tonal fingerprints, are all over Die Hard. It's why it's set at Christmas, everything like that. And so he he has stumbled on this thing that he can just do. He writes these... He likes to... He has these thematic things, and Christmas allows him to heighten and exaggerate those things. Yeah. So the, his tarnished nights seem all the more tarnished. Tarnished nights is just such a good way. Yeah, it makes of, them feel timeless, it, right? Yeah. And it's that timelessness. You know, it's set in the seventies, but this yeah. film was made in the twenty-first century, and you know, it, he picked a specific time, and it feels a lot like Chinatown. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it has, it's set in the 70s, but it has this sort of 1930s hard boiled film noir vibe to it. And then when he calls them Tarnished Nights, it makes them transcend just even the 20th century of America. And they, now you can imagine this type of, yeah, this is the medieval night. You know, it just, Tarnished Nights, 
that's why these characters don't just seem like stock art, stock cliches. They feel uh, just like there's so much more to them because mm. they just feel like there's more there because when he's writing them, he's thinking of them in that way. He's not thinking of them in just that way. He's researched his world. He said it in the 70s, all this stuff. But these are, because these are all choices, they're choices to express what? That nature of them. Yeah. And that nature is timeless. So it's just, anyway, it's just great. Do you want to talk about consistency quickly before we wrap this yes. up? Yes. So Shane Black, not, so the film, bear in mind he wrote and he directed it, right? The whole film, he's cast it beautifully. Every scene, as I pointed out, is just beautifully done, well written. But if you look at his career, this is true of every film. He's done. He's a lethal weapon. He did Monster Squad. He did the Long Kiss Goodnight. He did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. He did Iron Man 3, and he's done The Nice Guys. And I think the next one he's doing is Predator. He's doing the remake of Predator. Uh, And, um, oh, because he... He was in the first Predator, obviously. He was yeah. in it and he did a rewrite for it. Which was news to me today, by the way. <laughs> yeah, he's in it. Um, and um, the, all these films are just great. All of them. Here's how... By the, here's and they're all c- c- great for the same reasons. Yeah. They're not... They're not like... Oh, I mean... So, I think range... We should do a podcast on this. I think range is a little over... Um, oh, what's the word? Over, um, overemphasized overemphasized overvalued overvalued uh, because range is important but uh, some people don't have range some people are just really good at a certain thing but they are masters of it right Shane Black his films are pretty much all this sort of action comedy action crime comedies right yeah all, pretty much all his films are this but they're all brilliant yeah he doesn't write outside that. It's actually really interesting because he said the reason he's not getting Oscars and the reason he's not allowed to be part of the Academy, right, the, the, that gives out the Oscars, yeah. he's not allowed to have a say in it or anything, is because these are the types of films he makes. He makes hard boiled. You know, I, I know he tells that story about yes. not being allowed in yes. years ago. Is he still not part of the Academy? I don't think he's even tried to be back in. Oh, really? I don't know. But he wasn't allowed back. He wasn't. The story being he, he tried to be part of it so he could have a say be part he, of the Hollywood He was nominated elite. and yeah. rejected. And they, they kicked him out. Why? Because of the types of films he does, which is why I always say the Oscars are nonsense, because it's about what films do the Oscars want to be associated with, not what films are actually great. Yeah. It's never been about that. It's about the type of films they want to be associated with. And um, Shane Black, because of the choice of genre he works in, he is undervalued. He is just sort of ignored. And... People talk about range and range and range. But this guy is a master of this these genres. And what's more is these genres are some of the hardest genres to write because they've been done to death. Action and crime have been done to death so many times. They are the, probably the two most popular... Sorry, two most um, uh, prolific genres in writing history, right? Action and crime. And he picked those two and he's a master of them. And so I don't care about range. Uh, he's just great. But all his films, there's the consistency. They're all in these similar genres. They're all really well done. They're all very tight, lean pieces of work. And um, he's just great. This is the perfect moment to move on to the summary then. Because yes. um, part of the summary we wanted to talk... I mean, what do we take for our, for our own writing and... The answer for me is Shane Black. We take Shane Black. Yeah. My, we lock my, him in a room and we get him to do all our writing for us. That's it, exactly. I'm sure that's how he would produce his best work as well. Absolutely. If he ghost writes for us. <laughs> um, ghost directs for us as well. Uh, but my feeling is, you know, we do these podcasts and everything. We talk about why something does and doesn't work. But these are sort of sketches. But, but you're supposed to go off and do your own research. And... Uh, if you really want to learn writing, you take something like Nice Guys and you break it down scene by scene. Like, actually put two days aside because it'll probably take you about six hours to do so unless you want to do it in one go, right? You know, you can do it in one day if you want, but that'll be your day work, right? This is actual fecking work, by the way. <laughs> this is real work. Why did you look at me when you said that? No, because I'm for like, a, you know, just... Dramatic effect. No, I was just thinking like, you know... You don't think I you, work. You'd agree... 
like just for agreement like, that uh, I don't work no that, that it's hard work just like yeah bag me up um, but <laughs> no I agree I mean I was just going to reference I, I mean y- you've done a lot of movies I've broken down other stuff but we've broken stuff down together yeah and you just you, you, you get so your much. cards or you get whatever you want to make notes on you sit down you watch a scene and you write notes on that scene yeah you pause the film right <laughs> you, you put you know you close the book with the bookmark or whatever yeah. stop you write down one sentence, what that scene was, the turning point, the point, the purposes of the scene, if it was the inciting incident or an act climax or whatever, and you do that for our entire film. And if you want to, you break down the dimensions of characters. You do this stuff so that you learn because it's like getting the sheet music, you know? Yeah. We don't get... The script is not the sheet music. The script is just the script. Yeah. It's, you need to get to the story, how things turn and why things turn. And that's what you break down. And something like The Nice Guys is one of those films where you can just learn so much from it because it's so well done. Um, and it, it Music music as well is that great analogy because yeah. just because you've heard lots of great songs doesn't mean you can sit down and write one yeah. without having sat sit down to yeah. sat down to, to to break songs apart and Work out how right. they work. Why do you go from this chord to the next? When do you go to the chorus? Right. You know, how many choruses do you even have in a song? Yeah. And that you need to do that for stories. You need to do that for movies. Yeah. And so The Nice Guys is just a really great one to to break apart because, you know, it's just this wonderful film. And it's <laughs> just so well, it's so tight. And, you know, the, here's the joy, by the way. Breaking down films, like the way I just said, which takes like six hours... Try doing it for a bad film. You will want to blow your brains out. It's horrible. It's so painful. It's horrible as well because it's impossible to make decisions. You almost forget that it's a bad film. And so when you're, think, when you're thinking, okay, so surely between zero minutes and 30, there ought to be an, an act climax or, or something. A turning point. Or a turning or point or something. And you're like, well, this has to be a turning point because every scene has to have a turning point. But then but you realise this one doesn't. Yeah. And you one. just realise like, geez, nothing's happening and it's painful. Yeah. Uh, and with really good films, it's really difficult because they actually make you forget and you realise you've been watching the film instead of breaking it down. Because <laughs> you're not supposed to be breaking it down, right? The whole point, everything that the master is doing, right, is to make you not realise that it's a film. You're actively going against the master of his craft, yeah. right? It's like he's intentionally written his scenes and doing his scenes in such a way that you're supposed to switch off and just enjoy it, right? And get into it. Yeah. But you are actively trying to tear it apart. And that means you're fighting the film every step of the way, which is exhausting, by the way. It's just totally exhausting. By the way, one of, one of the hardest movies I uh, tried to break down was mm. Predator. Really? Yeah. Because it's just great. Yeah, because... Yeah. yeah. I had that problem with The Incredibles. I had that problem Too busy with... pushing pencils. <laughs> Love it. Uh, Michael Clayton, like, oh, Wrath Clayton. of Khan. Yeah, but then yeah, sometimes yeah. what's amazing is when you're breaking these films down, films you really like, you start to notice, hey... Like, uh, Die Hard, as much as I love Die Hard, it kind of is a bit saggy in the middle. Just a little. Nothing terrible, but it's something you'd notice if you're if it take if you're watching this over the course of six hours, you'll notice. Yeah. If you're watching over the course of two hours, you won't notice. You'll never notice because it's just so much fun the film, right? Yeah. But over six hours and you're breaking every moment down, you go, Ooh, that's a little that's a little stumble here. That's a little stumble there. But by and large, anyway, the point is it's hard to do, it's taxing, but it's really worth doing. And uh, when you get a really great film like The Nice Guys, breaking it down, it's very rewarding. It takes a lot of time. It's very hard to do. But at the end, you get to go, wow, that's how this film turns. Also, you know? just just as an addendum on, on this point, um, breaking down a two-hour movie, especially something really fucking good, mm. um, is daunting and if you if you sit there thinking good lord how am i going to do this and start with something shorter mm. start with you know yeah. if you pick a great episode of doctor who right. do that that's what an hour yeah or pick a great half an hour episode and do right. uh, of something you love and do that but then but then we've also broken down entire tv series we have done entire yeah. TV. well not <laughs> not to the beat by beat level, not by scene by scene God, no. but but, it, but oh, at the same time um if you're writing, that's what you're doing. Yeah. 
that is what you're doing. You're constantly breaking down your own work. I mean, that's how Shane Black writes. Yeah. Right. The way the way you would te- tear apart n- nice guys is what Shane Black did in order to make nice guys. Mm. So if you can't do that, you got to wonder how effective. This is one of the things that always kind of irks me whenever I talk to writers, and they kind of are reluctant to do this. I'm like, if you're reluctant to do it someone else's work, why would you do it to your own? You're probably not going to. So how? disciplined is your work really going to turn out to be oh i see yeah. do you know what i mean yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like if you want to do it to someone else's you won't do it to your own so it's it's just it's a skill you need to have because guess what once you've been able to do that to lots of people's work and you can do it enough times that you've really learned stuff and it's a process that's innate in you when you sit down and watch someone else's oh sorry when you sit down and write your own work that's what you'll do to your work yeah and you won't be satisfied with things that aren't good you will go i haven't hit that standard yet i haven't got that opening scene of nice guys <laughs> yeah anyway which brings us full circle yes which is a nice moment to uh, to start i think the best part is when you explain that <laughs> <laughs> all right bye bye